time before the word of the Lord. I have to say that I am I'm pleased for a number of reasons this morning. Uh, one, I'm just thrilled that Courtney Allen is here this morning. And that last Sunday at the end of service, uh, she gave her membership here to the Springfield Church of Christ, where she has been worshiping for some time. Uh, just a wonderful soul, and I pray that each of you uh, get to know her and her personality a, a little bit more in the coming months and years. Also this morning as I was worshiping here again, I, just, I love being back in worship. I hate missing worship, love being back, and I, I listen to uh, not only Sharon, and Sharon, have her up here as a joy with Natalie and uh, David as well, but any one of these musicians, uh, they could honestly be playing and being paid for it anywhere else. But they come here to do what they do as a gift to God and a blessing to us. And I'm just so thankful for the time they put in for the worship team that we have. Cal Bryant uh, wrote an article a couple of years back for the Roanoke Challen News Herald in North Carolina on Tuesday, June the 20th, 2017. And it was an article called Never Lick a Steak Knife. And he came up with 50 important rules of the universe that it took him 40 years to learn and compile. Now, I edited these down for time's sake. I'm only going to give you 10 of them this morning, but I like these. Number one was this. Don't worry about what people think. They don't do it very often. Number two, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than uh, standing in a garage makes you a car. Number three, artificial intelligence is no match for natural stupidity. I like that one. Number four, for every action, there is an equal and opposite government program. Number five, bills travel through the mail at twice the speed of checks. That's true, isn't it? Uh, number six, junk is something you've kept for years and throw away three weeks before you need it. Number seven, by the time you can make ends meet, somebody will have moved the ends. Number eight, there's a very fine line between hobby and mental illness. <laughs> number nine, Never be afraid to try something new. Remember that a lone amateur built the ark, but professionals built the Titanic. And finally, my favorite of them all, never under any circumstances take a sleeping pill and a laxative on the same night. <laughs> it took him 40 years to learn that? <laughs> well, I hope you've been learning a lot of important truths from God's Word. And in our times together on Sunday morning, we have walked through a, a series of stories of passion and extravagance as we watched a woman named Mary just pour out her absolute love on Jesus. We talked about going deeper in our worship for God. And then in last week in Malachi chapter 1, we saw how God has only ever given his very best for us. And he deserved our best, no leftovers. And we talked about that deeper level of excellence. And this morning, we're going to look back into the Old Testament again, and we're going to look at one of the most uh, popular passages. In fact, if I could say one of the top five stories in all of the Bible, this is one that probably would make that cut. And it comes in Genesis chapter 22, and I want you to turn there with me now. Genesis chapter 22, <clears throat> and it is a story with a high, high degree of drama. I want to just dive right into our story in Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. The scriptures say, at some time later, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. 
Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now, friends, when God comes to Abraham and says, I want your boy, I want you to pack him up, I want you to take him to the top of a mountain, and I'll show you the place where I want you to sacrifice him to me, I want your boy. There's a problem I think most of us have as we go back to read this account again. And the problem I find is it's one of those passages that no longer shocks us, what we just read. I'm telling you, this should shock us. What God would ask of Abraham in these two verses is an absolutely outrageous request compared to the character that we experience throughout the rest of the Bible. Can you imagine just hearing what he had heard in his sandals as he stood there. Parents, can you imagine God coming to you and saying, take your daughter, take your son, and take them to the top of a mountain, and I'll show you exactly where I want you to kill them and sacrifice them for me. From anybody else, not only would you be shocked, you would think, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, you are out of your mind. But this is from the mouth of God. You know, life is full of turning points. Life is full of defining moments. In in any well-constructed life, your life is built in, in many respects upon solid decisions you make in the little things of every day. But every now and then, we're involved with questions like this, things that I would call high drama moments of life. And the decisions that are made in that moment can alter the entire course of the rest of your life. Sometimes it comes along with the sound of monitors and IVs dripping. Sometimes it comes with a phone call or or promotions or restructuring in a business. Sometimes they, they just come with the passing of years and you know well, sometimes they come with pain. But you know how it feels, don't you? Sometimes you feel like Job in your life who would say, what's mankind that you make so much of them, that you give them so much attention? God, who are we that you would examine us every morning and test them every moment? What God asked of Abraham, it's not an ordinary, everyday sort of request. This is a request with life-altering implication. It is a request that would stretch Abraham's faith further than it had ever been stretched before. By the way, is the reason for God's purpose in giving this command in the first place. It is to stretch. It is to test and build Abraham's faith, which leads me to, to really my first insight from this account in Scripture. Our faith will be made stronger in times of severe testing. Our faith is made stronger in times of severe testing. This past week, I was down at Ohio Valley Medical Center in physical therapy, and Cheryl was out waiting in in the waiting room, and everybody in, in the room where we were working out stopped at the sound of a tone. And they went over the TV and they listened, and, and some people laughed. Uh, some of the people were panicking a little bit. Others were looking at their cell phones for confirmation. What? A tornado warning in February? I mean, you got, you got to be kidding me. And, and we found out later that sure enough, uh, there was a small tornado that came through. And while most of the young people at Shawnee were sheltered in place, my daughter and a few others, they were out running in a tornado. It touched down four miles just 
beyond them at East Jackson Road, uprooting trees, tearing off roofs of barns. But we all know that tone, don't we? But sometimes we recognize in that tone, it's, it's not just a warning of a tornado. It's not just a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is the real deal. This is not a daily temptation, pop quiz kind of a faith thing. This is a severe test. And for Abraham, nothing could have rocked him to the core more than this one. Now, we know Abraham. He's got a great track record as far as faith is concerned. God told him and his family in the land of Ur, pack up and move. And Abraham said, where do you want me to go, God? And God said, just go. I'll show you after you pack up and leave. And God said, Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to give you a baby. And Hebrews eleven twelve, 12, I love the way it says, and Abraham was as good as dead. That's quite a compliment from God, isn't it? I'm going to give you a, to a baby, and you're going to trade in your walker for a Graco stroller. You're going to trade in your cane for a diaper bag, Abraham. And Abraham said, all right, all right, all right, we'll go with that. I mean, this guy has a great track record of faith. James 2.23 says, Abraham believed God, and he was called God's friend. But you see this boy that God asked him to give? It's the only boy that Abraham and Sarah had. Wrapped up in this little guy was all the miraculous expectations and the promises of God's grace. He was 25 years in the making. 25 years in the waiting, and he meant the world to Abraham. Abraham had been there when he took his first breaths. Abraham had, had turned up his hearing aid to hear him speak his first words. Abraham had, had held his little hand as he took his first steps. He's the one that showed him how to go out into the field and, and to dig a hole and plant a seed and cover it in work. Abraham's the one that would pick up rocks alongside his son and show him how to build an altar against which no iron tool had ever been used so that one day he could worship the Lord on his own. That's the kind of relationship they had. Some of you have had that with your kids. I mean, they were, they were buddies. And now God comes to this dad and he says, Abraham, I want your boy. And friends, with that command, Abraham had a decision to make. And that decision left him with only two alternatives. Not 50, not 12, two. He could obey God or he could not obey God. And the question is, would his faith stretch far enough to enable him to obey such an outrageous command? You know, friends, there are times within each of our lives we're going to face some severe testing. Some of you are going through it right now. Some of you will. Hopefully it's not as severe as Abraham, but severe nonetheless. And it will come without warning, and it will stretch your faith further than you ever thought it could be stretched. And I might add how you respond in moments like those. It will alter the course of your entire life dramatically. I can go back to the evening of August the 14th of 2000, when Cheryl and I traveled over to my mom's apartment in Huntington, Indiana, to tell her, that her successful 33-year-old grandson working for Arthur Anderson had just died. He'd gone to the Y to work out, perfect picture of health, went back to his office, sat in the chair, and just fell back in the chair, and he was gone. It was one year before, on Father's Day, 
1999, that the paramedics worked trying to restart my father's heart. My mom's life was shaken, and she faced a severe test. Not all at the hands of God, because death is not of God's design. It's in the hands of the enemy. And all I could do at that moment was just fall back into the faithfulness of God as I sought to console my sister and my mom. And friends, when that severe test came, it was a turning point. It was a defining moment with implications that could alter the course of my mom's future. She had a choice. She could choose in that moment to walk a road of greater dependence upon God or a road of bitterness and cynicism and regret. Would she choose the road of doubting God's love, of doubting God's power and God's provision, or would she choose to trust on a deeper level? Two choices. Which one would she take? And if it hasn't happened to you already within your life, one day you're going to be sitting in a family room and you're going to be having one of those consoling talks and you're going to feel like your heart is being torn from your body. And you're going to have a choice. Will I believe in God for my future? Or will I succumb to doubts and questions to the point of just walking away from everything? Let's consider another alternative. Let's consider a woman who is, is disappointed with her marriage. In fact, she wonders how she's ever gotten married to this guy in the first place. I must have been out of my mind, she thinks, to have said yes to this guy. I mean, there's no feelings anymore. There's no hope for our marriage anymore. And one day, she meets this new guy at work. The days turn into weeks, and she kind of finds herself uh, following him. And he seems like everything she's ever wanted. This is the kind of guy that I deserve. This is the kind of guy I've been looking for all my life. If only I had a guy like that. And as the fantasy begins to evolve, that man makes it very clear one day that he's more than interested in her. And now a severe test has come in the form of temptation. And I'm not talking temptation with a little T. I'm talking temptation with a big T. This is not a guppy. This is a shark coming after her, and she's got a choice. One of those high drama moments, the outcome of which will direct the rest of her life to say no to temptation, or will require her to stretch her faith in God further than it's ever gone before. Take another scenario. Take a 35-year-old guy who gets a job offer one day. He's slowly been putting his nose to the grindstone, working his way up the ladder of promotion at work. And one day, out of the blue, the boss comes in and he says, I've noticed. And a new position is opened up in Denver, Colorado. And with it, you're going to get a bump in salary. You're going to get a bump in status and influence. You're going to have your own division to manage, which you always wanted in your own secretary. And it seems... Far too good an offer to pass up. But there's a catch. There's also going to be a lot of increased hours. There's going to be more time away from home from his small children and his wife. Extended times away from fellowship within his church. And now he's got a severe test in the form of allurement. He's got a choice. He doesn't have a dozen options. He's got two. And to say no to this offer that seems too good to be true... It's going to require his faith in God to stretch further than it's ever stretched before. 
You see, what I'm saying to you this morning is, is simply this. God allows such tests. In fact, sometimes I think God causes such tests to come into our life because he knows our faith is strongest in our lives in times of severe testing. Some of you sitting this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about because right now, life is tough. Your thoughts, even coming to worship and focusing on what you're singing or praying or doing, it's tough because your heart is being torn. Your heart as a mother, as a father, is being ripped apart. Your heart as an individual this morning, and your level of trust in God, it's, it's being stretched further than it's ever gone before. Well, let's see what Abraham in this passage has to teach us as we go on. Look in verse 3 with me. Early the next morning, so it doesn't take him too long to decide what he's going to do. Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. What do you think is going on in the heart of this dad in that moment? You think when he saw that place in the distance, a lump formed in, in his throat? That a knot kind of formed in his gut when he saw the place? Verse 5, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We'll worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his own son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, if, if I could paraphrase, Hey, Dad. Yeah, buddy. Dad, we forgot the lamb. We, we brought the wood, we brought the fire, we brought the knife. But Dad, we forgot the lamb. And can you imagine that, Dad? Verse 8, Abraham answered, Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I can't, in the English language, in any term of fiction or nonfiction in my reading in the past, I can't come with the, the human terms to describe to you the picture of what's going on here. They get to the top of this mountain that God has just revealed to them. And just the two of them, Isaac, he doesn't know what's going on. They build this altar together just like his little hands had done when he was just a little guy. They build this altar and they place the wood and, and they form it into a pile. And then his dad says, Isaac, I need you to get on top. And then he takes his son and he meticulously ties him down. And in verse 10 we read, he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. He had every intention of plunging the knife into the chest of his boy. Now, let me just suspend the story again and ask you, what enabled Abraham to ever reach that point? What led him to, that, to obey God to that degree? How could he? How could he appear to have every intent on, on killing that child? Well, I think part of the answer is in verse 5. Did you see it? What did he say? We will worship and we will return to you. It's kind of an interesting choice of pronouns, don't you think? Part of the answer, I think, is in verse 8 as well when he tells his son, God will provide the lamb himself. 
See, I think we get a hint here of what's going on in Abraham's mind. But the full answer, it really isn't given until you get to the New Testament into the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, it says this in chapter 11, verse 19, if you want to flip ahead with me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. Abraham reasoned. Well, let's just back up to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. It's in a sense in his mind He knows that even if he were to kill this child on the altar, that God could raise him back from the dead. Why would he act with such absolute sureness, though? How could you take that step? It's because God had made him a promise, and Isaac was the embodiment of that promise. Isaac was the promise, and Abraham believed that God was good to his word. How about you? Do you believe that God is good for his word? Are you confident that God can work out in your life whatever he promises to do? See, another insight that I gained from this is that a tested faith, it leans on the reality, the reality that God is always good to his word. We sing the song, standing on the promises I cannot fall, listening every moment to my spirit's call, trusting in my Savior as my all in all. I'm standing on the promises of God. Let's go back to those scenarios I mentioned just a few moments ago. What enables that mom to say no to the overwhelming temptation to be with this guy at the office and run back home to her husband, who she has no feelings for. I mean, I want to tell you, friends, from a worldly standpoint, nothing. There is nothing that should drive her back to him, absolutely. In this world's mind, there's no logical reason to say no to that temptation and go back home. All she would have in that moment is the promise of God that says, if you honor me, I'll honor you. What's it going to take for that young man to turn down that too-good-to-be-true promotion in Denver? Friends, all he has is the hope of of a better income there. And from this world perspective, there's no logical reason to turn it down. And people would say, you're crazy if you pass up this opportunity. And all that man has in that moment is the promise of God that says, I will bless you for following me. Trust me. What enables my mom and others like her to live with hope and joy for tomorrow? From this world's perspective, I'll tell you, not much. But from faith's perspective, it is a promise from God that he will be with us through the valley, even of the shadow of death. A promise that that life is not over, that God has a hope and a future, that God has plans for us, no matter how bad things work out in this life. Psalm 50, 15, God is faithful to the promise. If you call on me in the day of trouble, I'm going to part the waters. I'm going to level the mountains to get to you. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. 
And when you come face to face with life's most severest of tests, you're going to find sometimes all you've got to stand on is the promise of God. In fact, it goes a little bit deeper than that, actually. It's more than just his promise, because in effect, what are you standing on? You're standing on the character of God to keep his promise. It always astounds me. Times in scripture like this, where God seems silent. You know, from verse 1 to verse 11, God doesn't speak. And he waits until that 11th hour, 59th minute, to finally speak up in Abraham's life. And he says in in verse 11, back in Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And I I don't think he had to speak very loud. Because I think Abraham was listening for anybody to say, stop. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. But again, the shot clock was down to one and Abraham was right there on the ledge of faith and by all appearances, he was there alone. And God was not there with him when in fact, he was. He was right there in the moment to say, Abraham, now that I know See, God always shows up in our lives. He always does, and his timing is perfect, even when he seems silent. No matter how our lives may hurt, no matter how confused we may be, or how knocked off balance we are, God knows what he's doing all the time, and at just the right moment, he can step in and break the silence, and he may just be about to speak your name. And at the 11th hour and the 59th minute, he'll say, Cheryl, Cheryl. He'll say, David, David. He'll say, Peggy. And everything will change. Well, the last insight I want to leave you with is it's in those moments that the affections of our heart are clarified in times of testing. With that line, now I know, I think we get the whole reasoning behind the story. And this is an incredible thing for for us to recognize. You know, God did not truly want Abraham's boy. God wanted Abraham's heart. When it came right down to it, God wanted and needed to see that. And, And so did Abraham, by the way. Who Abraham's heart really belonged to. That's what this has all been about. And Abraham, that had raised this boy, God was watching God saw Abraham's love for this boy grow deeper with every diaper that he changed, with every scripture he taught him, with every chore that they celebrated together, and with every holiday. God watched all this unfold, and this precious father-son relationship develop. And God wanted to know, Abraham, has the boy that I've given you stolen your heart from me? And Abraham's actions answered with a astounding no. No, he hasn't, Lord. I think we can hear Abraham say, God, you know. God, you know that I love this boy with all my heart. And this boy is yours. But God, I know you gave him to me. He was an unexplainable gift of your grace. And he might be the joy of my life. But he belongs to you. And God, by the way, So do I. 
You know, sometimes I think that's what God wants to know from us. Does he have your heart? In all the severe tests of life, they serve to clarify where our affections really lie. When you find yourself stripped clean and right at the bottom of life, reaching out for what's left, what are you reaching out for? It's in that moment that it shows where your affections really lie and what you're all about, what your heart really belongs to. You know, sometimes I I think we fall into a trap, at least the world thinks about this as the church, that all we ever do as a church is ask for sacrifice. And to be honest, we do talk about it a lot. God wants our sacrifice, and we talk about how he wants our time. He wants our talent. He wants our our treasure and our testimony. God wants my job. God wants my family. He wants my studies. He wants my life. Whatever it is, everything I find joy and pleasure in, all God ever wants me to do is sacrifice. But what I want to say to you this morning, loud and clear, with the force of this passage behind me, friends, God doesn't want your sacrifice. God wants your heart. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your talent. He doesn't need a little bit more of your time. God wants your heart because he knows when you've surrendered your heart to him, he's got all the rest. The trouble comes because we've already been pledged to something else. We pledged our hearts to that which we call a career or that which we call a leisure time activity, or our heart belongs to that which we call a retirement account, or or what we place our enjoyment in or our pleasure on, and we sink all our waking energy into it. All the stuff or people that God's already given us as an inexplicable gift anyway. We've all got Isaacs in our lives. They come in all shapes and sizes. They are people, they're things, they're jobs. And friends, God wants to know, are we going to hold on to them or are we going to hold on to him? And tests in our lives come sometimes as a gift of God to pry open our hands and pry our heart open. Why would God do that? Why does he allow that to happen? It's because God loves us. And he knows that our hearts are going to be empty if we try to fill them with anything except for him. He doesn't do it because he wants to see us suffer. God doesn't do it because he wants to see us hurt. In fact, when our hearts are broken, it breaks the heart of God. But he knows in the end what will cost us the most. He allows it because he wants us to loosen our grip and loosen our hearts. And he knows if we fill our hearts with gifts instead of the giver, we will be forever empty. And we need to learn to hold loosely to those things in our life and hold to the giver of every good and perfect gift. And severe tests have a way of clarifying that, don't they? In fact, you may never find what you're about until you face them. Tell me what these three places have in common. Cooperstown, New York, Springfield, Massachusetts, and Canton, Ohio. What do they have in common? They all have Hall of Fame locations. The Hall of Fames, all of them have requirements for entrance. 
virtually every one of them is a significant accomplishment. You got to be a peak performer, you know, far than a cut above average to get in. Well, did you know the Bible has a hall of fame also? It comes in Hebrew, the 11th chapter, and we're told the requirement to get in this hall of fame, it's not the level of your sacrifice. It's not personal ability or accomplishments. It's not even peak performance that gets you into this hall. It is simply faith. In fact, Hebrews chapter 6, or 11 verse 6 says this. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Entrance into that hall comes to those that are willing to display a deeper level of trust, who go beneath with God, a deeper level of obedience to his glory and honor. And I might add this today, anyone is eligible. You're eligible, I'm eligible, anyone. So what will your response be? I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. And I want to pray for us. And friends, if there's a need within your heart, we only have one more um, week left on this series. And at the elders' request, we're going to start a new series uh, coming next week, or the week after next. And I hope you'll be here for that. We're going to talk about, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Why, why do we believe what we believe? And I want you to be here as we begin that. And then after that, we're going to start looking towards Easter, believe it or not. So things are going to happen quick, uh, a little fast and furious. But before this next week, and we end this series of what lies beneath You've had time to consider what, what lies beneath, what lies to support you, what, what power do you have within your life? Are you resting on the promises of God? Your faith is going to be stretched further than you ever thought it could be stretched. But if it draws us closer to God, isn't that a good thing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for all those that are listed in that hall of, of fame in Hebrews 11. Not one of them saw what they hoped for until it actually came through you. When Jesus came, we experienced the, the answer to their hopes and their prayers. They held on and they were faithful. and They chose to live in a way that it was just written into their account. It was credited to them as righteousness. We have received so much more. We have the, the, the proof testimony of so many witnesses. We have your inspired word to assure us not only of your great love for us, but Father, your word really shows us the dark stain of our sinfulness. And there's not a person in this room or standing behind this pulpit today that doesn't sin and fall short of your holy standard. But Father, your word reveals that you loved us so much you provided the only way that we could come into a relationship with you. You gave the life of your son. And even as you raised your proverbial knife, there were no shouts of stop. As a Roman hammer was raised high and fell to crush the nail into his wrists and hands. Father, you didn't stop it. Because if you had, we would be without hope. But Father, you gave a perfect sacrifice for us. And because of that blood today, no matter what this life throws our way, 
we have one to walk through this life with, to make sense of what can only be called agony sometimes. Father, help us to deepen with you the relationship, the intimacy we have to just come before you with all that we have. And Father, perhaps for someone this morning, it's time to start that relationship. It's time to say, I, I'm ready to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I'm ready to have my sins washed away and start new. Father, if that's a desire here today, then give them a spirit of courage to accept your offer. If it's a believer here today that's struggling, Father, you made us do life together, and they're here to worship and lift up your name. And I pray that your spirit is just teaching them. But Father, connect us in your spirit that we can be one, that we can not just encourage, but we can grow each other by the times we spend together. And Father, I pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.